You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Batuta Advocate radio show, wherever you may be in the Diamantina Shire or in the world. As always, my name is Errol Parker, and sitting alongside me in the booth today is Clancy Overall. Yes, hello again, if you are a regular listener, and thanks for dropping in if you're a guest. As is the norm on this show, we've lined up an interesting interviewee today. He's come in and he's going to have a little chat with us here in Koala Mattress Studios on Desert Rock FM. But it's been a big week with the uh, suppression order lifted on the Cardinal Pell story. Funnily enough, we aren't in the know here at the Batuta Advocate, so we found out when the rest of the public found out that Cardinal Pell had been convicted, and we've written quite a lot about it. Um, And as hard as we tried to get a uh, member of the Catholic Church in here to talk to us, uh, they've all gone quiet. But Father Bob, we look forward to having you on the show and or Tony Abbott. And we're keeping in theme with last week's show in a roundabout kind of way, aren't we, Clancy? Yes, that's right, Errol. Following on from last week's discussion with the very funny boys from Hello Sport about the NRL off-season and the scandals that came with it, we've got someone else in today to uh, talk about the rampant cocaine use and violence in a, in a fairly different setting. Yeah, he's talking about it, but not in the front of a nightclub at 3am kind of setting. His name is Rusty Young, and he is the best-selling author of the book Marching Powder, which you might be aware of. It sold over 600,000 copies. It's been out for almost 10 years. He's a documentary maker, and he also spent time as a counter-terrorism expert in Colombia. And of course, he's done much, much more, which we're going to get into. Yes, he spent plenty of time in Bolivia, Colombia, and South America, Central America in general. His book, Marching Powder, was written after he voluntarily spent time in a now-famous Bolivian prison. Yeah, he's originally an uptown boy from Sydney, but uh, he's just released a new book, which is set to be released in the United States and, and the United Kingdom uh, later this month. So if you're uh, one of our valued listeners from that part of the world, then be sure to check it out at your local bookstore. Yes, it's an incredible story, much like... Uh, the stories he is going to share with us today. And Rusty has kindly stopped in here at Desert Rock FM to have a chat to us ahead of some panel talk he's doing at the Batuta Arts and Literature Festival tonight. So, let's get into it. Rusty Young, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me here. It took quite a while to come in on the uh, into Batuta from Sydney on the light rail, yeah. um, which hasn't yet been constructed. Yeah, no, they're doing a little bit of work there at the uh, at the Burke interchange there. I'm looking so. forward to just gliding through Sydney. <laughs> now, you've spent a lot of time around the world. Let's let's go back to the start. Mm-hmm. You were a young kid uh, living in the Harbour Republic that you, we just spent a little while talking about. <laughs> the, the private non-democratic Republic of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then particularly down in the Harbour, um, you know, the, the sterile uh, stockbroker's <laughs> paradise. What made you, was it, was it just a run-of-the-mill young person idea to go backpacking around Colombia? Yeah, I was doing, I did uh, commerce law and it mm-hmm. probably ultimately didn't really suit my personality mm-hmm. um, and my sort of temperament. Um, you were in the right city to do yeah, it. Yeah, I was in the right city to do it. And look, you know, my um, parents always encouraged me to work really hard and stuff. And so at that stage, um, law was, was a pretty good profession to go into, how to have a steady income, but it really didn't suit me. So by the end, I was ready to tear my hair out. Um, I did actually work for, in merchant banking for a while, but uh, I went hell overseas. Yeah. Uh, hell yeah. This is why I'm so bitter. <laughs> um, so then I just went overseas with my then-girlfriend, Simone Camilleri, um, and we went traveling backpacking around, and we went through Bolivia, and then I ended up um, 
staying in Bolivia uh, for f- four months inside San Pedro prison. So yeah. th- it was really quite accidental, but my, my career path. It was just from going traveling and seeing an opportunity and then just going off on a bit of a tangent. Now, we heard that you were maybe kind of – your interest was piqued by rumors that you'd heard about this character living inside – yeah, well, they weren't just rumours. It was actually written up in the Lonely Planet guidebook, yeah, and I right. just couldn't believe when we were backpacking around. We sort of said, "What are you? What, what are the good things to do in La Paz, which is the uh, the main city in in Bolivia?" And in the Lonely Planet guidebook, it lists this prison, San Pedro, as the world's most bizarre tourist attraction. So, and Thomas McFadden was the uh, black English drug trafficker who was uh, in there, and he was running guided tours. So you'd go yeah. to the You'd go to the gate of the prison, yeah. hand your passport to the guards. Uh, you weren't allowed phones in uh, or any sort of f- uh, photographic equipment. Go into the prison and he would take uh, tours, tour groups around the prison yeah. and then he would select <laughs> certain um, tourists that he sort of liked the look of for whatever reason. Like, like oh, you're, you're, you're cool, you're Australian. Come back to my cell and then he'd just lay out some cocaine on a CD case and say, here, have some. Yeah. So he he was incarcerated. He was busted um, for attempting to traffic five kilograms through the airport. It got reduced to one point two five. In other words, three point seven five disappeared, yeah. and uh, he was sentenced to almost six years in prison. He wouldn't speak the language, and he and basically you have to buy your own prison cell in inside the prison. And there are eight different sections. Like and each one of them's got like a star rating, like a hotel. So mm-hmm. he can only afford the four star with the other foreigners. There's a five star section with uh, politicians in it, and basically it's just a, a free community in there. The guards only go in once a day to um, check the roll to the make sure everyone's there. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, you can bring in your wife, your children, your girlfriend, your music, your television. You've got the key to your own room. Just can't go home. Uh, you just can't go home. Well, you can go out on, on day leave or night leave. If you if you pay the police, this is what Thomas did. He actually met his girlfriend out night clubbing whilst a prisoner, right? So he, It sounds pay- a lot like boarding school in a way. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. You're, gonna, you're paying for the privilege to get locked up. So, so firstly, you buy your prison cell and they give you the, uh, the it's called titulo proprietario, which is like the deed. So you actually get a stamped and signed deed to pay land, like stamp duty on the, on the property transaction. And then whilst he was awaiting trial, he paid a hundred dollars to one of the policemen to take him outside take him out and they went out to a nightclub and went dancing and chasing after girls right. <laughs> now do you find it is is that quite telling of the people in that part of the world are they are they merchants are they quite industrious no, to look, be able to operate bolivians are bolivians are absolutely lovely people they're really friendly uh, hospitable it's a it's a landlocked nation so it's it's really been preserved in terms of culture like you, there's there's some it's it's backward economically it's one of the poorest um, nations in the western hemisphere but you know, the, the the people are lovely but the trouble is that they've had you know centuries of corrupt corrupt rule um, um, and so I think at one stage it had the highest turnover of um, political leaders in the world there was more than <laughs> one president per year because they were just constantly in revolution sounds like Australia Australia's almost catching up <laughs> <laughs> the private non-democratic republic of Australia <laughs> Now, um, tell us a little bit about. I mean, you spent a bit of time there. You 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 linked up with this bloke, Thomas McFadden. McFadden yeah, he was a Brit. Yeah, he's Tanzanian born, yep. uh, but he'd uh, moved to um, Liverpool yep. at quite a young age, and then he. So he's a Scouser. Yeah, well, officially he's a Scouser, but I mean, he's he really didn't spend enough time there for the accent or the yep. culture to stick, and he had a fairly troubled upbringing and decided at the age of sixteen to go out drug trafficking. So he'd been trafficking um, drugs. Yeah, just yeah. Left, just left school, ran away from home, and uh, went and saw the world, but financed it using um, drug sales, and he used to run heroin out of um, India. 
mm-hmm. in Pakistan. Um, and then he decided to start running cocaine out of Bolivia, and he did it successfully for a few years. And then uh, the U.S. government started really cracking down on the airport in Santa Cruz, and uh, then he changed airports, changed his system, and got caught. So, where was he running it to? Was he taking it back to back America? To, back to or Europe. Back to, back to Europe. Right. So he would. Uh, the what he would do is be. It's a pretty simple thing. A lot of traffickers use it. Is he would pack the suitcase and hide the drugs in the spine of the suitcase, like compress it down, and put female clothes um in the in the suitcase so he couldn't be linked to it and then just wouldn't pick the uh suitcase up in the airport uh Charles de gaulle and he had one of the baggage handlers take it to lost and found and then take it out of the airport so that's a pretty uh old school way of doing it yeah but um it was successful for a lot of years right so he ended up getting pinged uh, yeah he got pinged he, i mean he his five mis- kilos he made the mistake of bribing someone so he's basically let someone know he had a really quite a foolproof way of, of doing it where, yep. which where even if the suitcase had been caught he couldn't have been linked to it mm-hmm. um but he also as an extra precaution ended up paying off one of the colonels in the airport who was the head of uh, security and anti-narcotics in the airport and that guy was the one who caught him right so he, he actually didn't really care he was like yeah basically he was just get, trying to win on both sides yeah. so basically the colonel accepted the bribe to <laughs> to let the tra- corrupt trafficker out Caught the trafficker, gets the kickback from from his authorities, probably sold some of the drugs as well. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, you said three kilos went missing, three, yeah, yeah three point seven five of the five. But what are you going to do when? And also, Thomas was pleading innocent, right? Mm. So, because um, there's no reduction in sentence for pleading guilty. So, if someone says you're accused of trafficking one point two five kilograms, you go, no, it was five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I'm innocent. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, can you tell us a little bit about? Once you got in there, you decided to stay. Yeah, well, I didn't intend to stay for as long as I did, but I really Thomas's idea was I had to kind of live in there um, to do the research yeah. properly because when the first night I went in there with my girlfriend Simone and we ended up staying the night in there, partying on and drinking and <laughs> in prison <laughs> in the prison like yeah. this is a party house yeah. like they actually manufacture cocaine inside the prison. Yeah. Um, it's the, you know, really? yeah, and so Thomas Thomas used to say. You know, because it was it's pretty intimidating when you're you know you're a law graduate and you go into a prison and you're like, staying the night and, and I, I was very nervous and I was worried about entrapment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he sort of said, "Look, this is the safest place in the world to take cocaine because what are they going to do if they catch you? Put you in prison?" Yeah. <laughs> so, so it did seem like a bit of a, a party prison and a bit of a holiday camp. Yeah. Like you're like, this isn't real prison, but there's a lot of injustice and corruption and yeah. violence inside the prison, and you don't see that as a tourist just yeah. doing a one-hour tour. So yeah. I stayed with him in his prison cell, slept on the floor on a mattress. I wasn't an actual prisoner, obviously. I hadn't committed any crimes, but I just paid the guards to go in and out as I, as I, yeah. as I wanted. How much were you paying him? Um, it was actually five dollars to, to get in. Um, I negotiated the, a monthly rate, um, and the, at the time the hostels were about six or seven, so it was actually cheaper, yeah. <laughs> cheaper to stay the night in the prison. Did you know you were going to write a book about the blog before you met him? No, not no, at all. I, I, no. We just we were just interested in going in and yeah. seeing the world's most bizarre tourist attraction. And look, he had yeah. between at the peak between fifty and seventy tourists coming through a day, so just to a number, he was just doing constant tours. And it, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but so of the $5, $2.50 would go to the guards and $2.50 would go to Thomas and his crew. Um, but if you got times that by 50 people per day, you know, he was making good money for Bolivia yeah. and um, he had bodyguards and yeah, you know, right. it's just this entire industry. Because the, the Bolivian authorities throw the prisoners in the, in, the, in the prison, but they haven't got any money. They don't give them food, so they've got to pay for their own food. They've got to have a job, buy their own prison cell, buy their own clothes. There's no uniforms. Yeah. 
and support their family. So it's basically it's kind of like legalized corruption. Yeah. So the book came out in two thousand three. What year were you in in the prison with Thomas? Uh, he got out at the beginning of at the end of very end of two thousand. So it took sort of two two years to write. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Did you have that moment when your book became an international bestseller that you were like, uh, that's pretty pretty interesting for my first book? You know, you hadn't written a book before. No, you know what? <laughs> like I did, the, the publisher here did a really great job and, and you know, I yeah. did my very first television appearance and radio and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you don't start seeing the sales figures until um, every every six months they give you a, you know, a royalty yeah. check. And I just went back to Colombia. By that stage, I'd been living in Colombia, and I loved Colombia. I wanted to write a book about Colombia, and I yeah. had a girlfriend, a new girlfriend there. And so I just went back to Colombia, where the book didn't come out. And so I didn't quite know that, you yeah. know, somewhere back in Australia and UK and US, this book was really taking off. And you know, this is the this is when there was there was the internet, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't Facebook, yeah. there wasn't Twitter. Infantile yeah. So and I just didn't really pay much attention. I just thought, well, no, I've done that. Now I'm going to write another one. Yeah. And when did that, you flew home for Christmas and everyone was patting you on the back? Or? Um, so I got, no, so my parents got a phone call from a guy a guy from Jer- Jerry from LA and he, he's a Hollywood movie agent. I thought it was just one of my friends taking the mickey. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, hey, this is Jerry from LA. You know, I represent Hollywood stars and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, and he goes, yeah. And he ended up selling um, the movie rights to a, a company called Plan B, which was owned by Brad Pitt. And so yeah. suddenly I went... Hang on, Brad Pitt's buying my book. Well, he's writes. read my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the point where I went, "Oh, this is kind of cool." Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not sure if it's in the high school curriculum yet, but it is definitely referenced right across. Um, you know, uh, it, there's definitely some um, schools in, in Western Australia where it was actually on the syllabus, and I think in year ten. I'm just like, you know, this is a book about a drug trafficker who's making yeah. these decisions about the curriculum. And the other really funny thing I thought was that it was the most borrowed book in the Australian prison system because they've got libraries in, yeah. in prisons. Yeah, right. And I got invited to go to go and do talks inside the prison, so inside <laughs> these like Australian prisons, Folsom Prison Blues. <laughs> <laughs> I guess people get inspired. I don't know whether, why they're reading. I guess because it's a, you know it resonates with their own experience being locked up and um, feeling isolated. It's either that or they're trying to learn how to traffic better. Now it wasn't just it just was it wasn't just coke and rock music in the prison. You saw, no, you not got at all. to see. I mean, four months, right? You yeah. got to see every. Yeah, look, I've got to say, look, for maybe about the first week or so, it's like, wow, this is really exciting. No one in the, this is a life experience. Wow, I'm living in a prison, aren't I? You know, cool and dangerous. Mm-hmm. But I've got to say, after three months, four months, it's really just quite boring. You could, you, you know, you just you can't move. You, you're isolated. Um, you know, it's a little bit dangerous at night time. They've got lots of people taking, uh, smoking cocaine, yeah, right. um, and they get violent. So you basically got you're in lockdown at night time, and you know you can watch television, listen to the radio, but you, you're in a prison. Mm-hmm. So have you heard anything more about the film? Is it, uh... Uh, yeah, so then Brad Pitt's company didn't make it, obviously. Uh, it's still in pre-production, uh, and they've got a really good actor called Chiwetel Ejiofor, who um, your listeners might know from the movie 12 Years a Slave. So oh, he yeah. he's great. And, well, he's a Brit too, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think he's Nigerian-born yeah. uh, Brit. Yeah. So he really, you know, really gets the role, and he's a fantastic actor. Um, so fingers crossed that gets made, along with Colombiano, the next book. Yeah, so um, tell us a little bit about this. Okay, so after after living in this prison, I really wanted to stay in South America. I just love the culture, I love the language, love the mm-hmm. people. And I also wanted to write a book about Colombia because I thought it was really, really misunderstood. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, all you hear about Colombia is drugs. Everyone's always making jokes. Ha ha, Colombian cocaine. 
there's a war on. It was a dangerous country. I think it had one of the highest murder rates in the world. There's like 30,000 yeah. murders per year in a country of you know 40 million people. And it also had the highest kidnap rate in the world. It was like nine, on average, nine to 10 kidnaps per day. Now, just imagine if... Um, just imagine if we had one kidnapping here in Australia, it'd be, you know, be news for yeah. the news cycle forever. Um, so that was just that was the normality, that was the uh, reality that uh, most Colombians live. But they are such lovely people, and when I'm, when I was there, we did, it was just they were just so friendly. They never got robbed, never got attacked, never got threatened. And I was like, wow, this is a really really misunderstood country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also true that it is the world's biggest uh, producer of cocaine, and all the stories about the violence and the war and the guerrilla and the injustice are also true. So I thought, wow, what a fantastic complex dynamic to um, to write about because it's got this contrast of the violence and the corruption and the drugs and on the other side people the ordinary everyday Colombians who are just wonderful friendly people and if you've met Colombians here in Australia there's quite a few in Batuta I believe yeah, yeah. Um, they you know, come in I don't know how they get in yeah they're living like, down in boats, the, um, maybe. the flood um, park district yeah. <laughs> big in the uh, hospitality um, but, but Colombians are just such warm friendly smart outgoing mm. people and Shakira Shakira know? yeah well that was actually one of the reasons that yeah. I was like well, I want to go to that country hips don't lie yeah so how did, how did you come to work for the US government Okay, so there was a, that's another interesting story. So I've, yeah. come, I've gone from law school to prison, to a voluntary yeah. prisoner, and then I went over to – and the book hadn't taken off yet, and I needed money. I was in debt, actually, after finishing Marching Powder. I had, my parents kindly bailed me out and, uh, and got a little loan, and, which they backed, you know, really lovely, supportive parents I've got. And, and I was working as an English teacher, and I was getting you know, like you know, $5 an hour as an English teacher, and I was flying into, back into uh, Bogota from Miami, um, after visiting my parents and, and sister in Australia, and I met a guy on an airplane, and he sort of said, "You know, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "I was like, what are, what are you doing?" And he said, oh, "He's in construction." And I said, "There's no construction, because <laughs> like, the country's at war, and the, yeah. you know, there's no new, there's no economic development, so there's no construction." He goes, "No, I'm in construction. Here's my business card." And I said, "I said, do you work for the DEA or the CIA?" <laughs> and he just looked, he just looked at me and he goes, "Why are you a drug trafficker?" <laughs> I mean, I'm going, "This whoever this guy is, he's pretty cool." And you were better at his job than he was. No, apparently. I wasn't. No, no, he, he was good at his job, and he, he was laughing, and and we sort of stayed in contact, and um, gradually I sort of said, "Come on, you know." What do you really do? And he goes, well, do you want a job? Right. And I was like, doing what? And he goes, well, get a haircut, mm-hmm. buy some decent clothes. Because I was like a scruffy backpacker with long hair, like yeah, short yeah. length hair. Like, like uh, a lot of kids that come yeah, back from like six was, months in La- South and Latin America. I was 27, 28 years old and I've got long hair and, uh, you know, ponytail and, <laughs> and unshaven and just wearing ripped jeans. And, uh, and he goes, do you want a job? And so um, he took me to uh, an American a US constructed military base and said this is what we do it's counter-terrorism and I said what specifically and it was kidnap rescue so training up the local um, SWAT teams um, in local Colombian SWAT teams with the US instructors from sort of um, special forces um, Marines training up the locals so he said we've lost a manager we need a manager so can you help manage this and I'm like why me I'm just yeah. I'm just yeah. a little uh, I'm just a little Aussie writer but you, you had your Spanish yeah. by then yeah I could speak you, you learn to, yeah. to defend yourself pretty quickly in prison because yeah, you know, yeah. language is you know language is more important than actually say fighting ability yeah, you know, yeah. talk your way out of a situation so I could speak Spanish uh, you know I've got a, a law degree a, a finance degree so I can do accounting and that sort of stuff by basic basic level accounting yep. and I think the main thing is they wanted someone who was honest yep. and um 
And I think also most of the people who in the who work in the as military contractors at that stage were in Iraq and Afghanistan, where they get paid, you know, so much money per day. Like we're talking about a thousand US dollars a day uh, tax free. Mm-hmm. And if you're a soldier who's been earning nothing and risking your life, and a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars a day mm-hmm. is just ridiculous you get amount out of, of money. Bit for that. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, well, you know, you can give me a hundred, <laughs> I'd be happy. So. That was it. I started working as a contractor for yeah. the U.S. government uh, in, a, in a state department. It was called um, AKI, Anti-Kidnapping Initiative. Mm-hmm. And I started working for them and uh, it was just one of the best and most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I know Australians are really cynical about um, U.S. foreign policy. And that was one of my reservations at the beginning. But I then thought, look, what is the justification for kidnapping people? And you, this, the horrible, horrible mm-hmm. conditions that uh, kidnap um, victims are held in. And th- yeah. it's like being in prison, but you're in the jungle. So there's no sunlight. Mm. Um, leishmaniasis disease, really poor diet. Your clothes actually rot off your body. And you don't know when you're going home or if you're going to go home. And mm. their stated policy when if there is a, 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 an attempted rescue is to shoot the shoot the prisoners, right? So you're kind of hoping that you're going to get rescued. Yeah. But if you do get rescued, you're hoping you're not going to get shot. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and you don't know when your ordeal is going to end. Some of the, some of the uh, Colombian pe- people who have been kidnapped there were in the jungle for 10 years, 10 yeah. years. Just, you know, how do you... Yeah. How do you just POW yeah. stuff. Yeah, horrific, exactly. Yeah. But worse, for 10 years. Mm. Yeah. And how, you know, and, and then so that was the the US actually really made a huge difference in Colombia look what happening look at what's happening right now in the uh, left leaning uh, countries in in uh, South America. Look what happened. Look at what's happening right now in Venezuela. Well, it's yeah. in absolute crisis. So they went left wing, mm-hmm. supposedly socialist, but turned it into a dictatorship. And then look what, what's happening with Colombia. Now I'm saying it's ideal. There is still a lot of corruption and there's a lot of violence still. But because they had the economic development and the US backed um, their military against the uh, FARC terrorist organization. And they started rescuing kidnap uh, victims, and it really made a difference. There are still kidnaps, but it's less than one per day. Okay. So on average, so it went from nine or ten down yeah. to one, and they really won the war. And then the, basically, the uh, the FARC reached a, a, peak, a peace pact with them a couple of years back, and so officially the war's over. There's still lots of socio-economic problems in the country, but that is one example where a U.S. intervention actually really made a positive, di- yeah. an overall positive difference. Yeah. I'm not saying there weren't uh, lots of incidents and terrible things happening along the way, but it really did make a difference. And Colombia is just, you know, leap years ahead of um, many of its neighbours. And in fact, I think there's over a million Venezuelans have fled to Colombia. And unlike Australia, um, the Colombians have welcomed them with yeah. open arms, yeah. just to such a giving nation, really good people. So you weren't... On the tools, uh, you know, like you didn't have like uh, like a machine gun. Uh, yeah, I, we had a fleet of five bulletproof cars. Yeah, so we'd switch them around. I had an apartment, a securitized apartment. You had to live on the third floor or, or above because of car bombs. So the threat of car bombs. You have to have a mylar sheet over the glass window because a lot of when 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 car bombs go off, the thing that usually kills people is um, projectiles, not yeah. not the actual blast. It's yeah. the Say glass, like imagine all the shards of glass yeah. coming at you. CCTV cameras, um, armed guard, uh, you know, bulletproof car. Change your, I changed houses. I don't know, like, I think thirteen times in in Colombia, uh, and I spent part of my time out on this on the military base. And then the program was also run out of um, the U.S. embassy there, which. I think at the time was the biggest embassy, bigger even than yeah, the biggest U.S. embassy in the world. 
at the so time. So it was better for you not to be staying there? Or to yeah, be- look, I just kept a low profile. Like I actually ended up not cutting my hair. I had long hair for a lot of it, which didn't go down well with the people on the military bases who have shaved heads. You know, I was a bit of a, looked like a bit of a lefty, yeah, yeah. P- pinko, como. Noble savage. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I spent part of my time out there and just basically always wore um, casual clothes and just never talked to anyone mm-hmm. about what I did. So it wasn't undercover it wasn't um clandestine what i was doing but it just didn't pay to advertise either yeah for sure um but yeah we they were, we're, were importing um assault rifles um m4a1 car- carbines uh glock pistols ammunition grenades debt cord which is used for um, breaching um so we had all the all the importing all that stuff and then using that for training did you um you were staying in Bogota? Yeah, mainly in Bogota. I mean, there are thirty two different provinces in in Colombia, and each one of them has its own uh, special anti kidnapping group. So we did travel around. Thirty two. Yeah, thirty two yeah, different. It's a small country, but yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. very it's very regionalized. There'd be different governments per province. It's similar, like it's like council and state governments fusing into one. Yeah, correct. And it's yeah. it, it really is like almost like many countries in one. You've got Bogota at two thousand six hundred meters above sea level. That's the you know that's the capital. Um, it's higher than Kosciuszko. Yeah, it's higher mm. than Kosciuszko. And then you've got Medellin, which is uh, known unfortunately for yeah. Pablo Escobar. But it's a really beautiful, um, you know, sort of almost semi-tropical um, country with a but the really really different people, really different cultures, even different accent within yeah. the same country. Yeah, and yeah. Then, and then there's the Costeños, who are the people from the coast, and they've got a different accent, a different attitude, and there's a mix of sort of ethnic um, groups as well. Then you've got the um, the traditional indigenous Colombians, and many of them, uh, there were even, up until recently, there were even nomadic tribes living in the Amazon jungle who yeah. were using blow darts, like quite literally. So you've just yeah. got a really diverse country and, and not controlled by the, the central government. So that was what allowed... Um, that was what allowed these terrorist organisations and yeah, drug trafficking units to flourish. That and the geography, which is really mountainous, yeah. lots of rivers, yeah, so yeah. really hard to control, and its proximity to the United States meant that it was the best sort of launching point for trafficking drugs into the States. Yeah. A lot of Latin America um, you know, deals with you know, corruption throughout their governments, but Argentina is, is an example of one that um, has... Uh, corrupt government after corrupt government, similar to New South Wales, I guess. But, <laughs> but also uh, on the surface, it, it can look like you know you're walking down the streets of Paddington or or, yeah. or Vancouver. Yeah. Is there any parts of Colombia that feel like that? You feel like you're 100 percent first world. Yeah. yeah, most of Bogota, most yeah. most of Bogota is uh, very first world. In fact, I'd say uh, they almost ha- are more advanced than than us in terms of public transport infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They had a. a a Swiss company, I believe it was Swiss, uh, and they did the Trans Millennio in 2000. That was like a light rail system. Mm. Um, you know, we still haven't got our light rail system. You worry, um, back to Bolivia, mm. that you might have gentrified this prison? Yeah, look, it was, look, at the time, remember that I didn't even know whether I, whether the book was going to be published at all, or I didn't have a yeah. publisher. I didn't know how to publish a book. I'd never written a book. I just went in there yeah. as a kind of, you know, law graduate and just went, oh, let's, let's just see what happened. So we yeah. wrote it. And then obviously it took off. And if you read it closely, it's not it's not glorifying drug trafficking. It's <laughs> no. saying this is a terrible thing. You can become addicted. Yeah. This is what the prisons yeah. are like. And and this is what the this is what drug trafficking does to a, to an economy. Is it makes it really really corrupt. So I really saw it as a, a cautionary tale. Mm. Uh, but people just go. Oh, How cool. Mad's that? Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. It's funny. So, the, the, the reaction of um, of Americans versus UK versus Australia. Yeah. So, most of the comments I get in the, in the US websites is 
this is a very long tail. I don't think this is true. Who's this amateur journalist? <laughs> I think you're a right? bit of a shandaram. Yeah. No, absolutely yeah. just like flat out say this guy's lying because yeah. they haven't travelled to South America. So they go, this, yeah. this couldn't be true. The UK people sort of say, dear Rusty, thank you so much for <laughs> providing us with a vicarious experience that we would never ourselves choose to embark <laughs> upon. And the Aussies go, g'day, mate. Uh, is the prison still open and how much is a gram of cake? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they've just released the stats from the sewers. Uh, yeah, I think in, in yeah. Australia, Sydney, yeah. uh, your hometown Apparently, is uh, number one in the world. They, yeah, they were saying that for every thousand people there are in Sydney, it's uh, it's, it's one point two grams of the Charlie's being consumed. That's yeah, I saw those stats in that. That's a lot. Yeah, it's an, it's a really novel approach to you know measuring uh, drug um, usage because well, it is. It's really important because. Otherwise, it's just self-reporting. So yeah. you go, this, yeah. this this country... So, yeah, we're doing tons and tons of cocaine. I think Sydney's the leading per capita cocaine user. I believe uh, the XTC capital was Tasmania and <laughs> ICE capital is Melbourne. So it's great that all these cities are really advancing. And, got their own yeah, thing. Yeah, well, got their own thing going on. But Brisbane, I, I Brisbane's the, still on the reef. You know, interestingly, the, uh, the National Drug and Alcohol Research Council has, has done longitudinal studies as well, and those stats also agree with the long-term trends. Mm. So heroin and marijuana use um, is slightly down but stable. It's still at a worrying level, but uh, ICE is really the big one yeah. that we need to yeah. keep an eye on. It's just that is such... A hor- an horrific drug. It really is an appalling drug. You know, it's sort of, you know, it's just, it's like a, poor, yeah. it's like a poor man's cocaine. Yeah. It's a hor- horrible drug. Don't do it. Don't try it. So, to tell us. <laughs> speaking of doing drugs, for someone who has been in, <laughs> you're um, talking to me, or you've been th- in, you've been on, in, on a theoretical level, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you've been in the, in the theoretically, everyone, um, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah. No one does drugs. Anymore. No one does drugs. But you've been in the prison where you find some of the best cocaine in the world at a price that is you know with affordable it's mm. affordable can you understand why people in australia do cocaine it's just ridiculous i mean uh, if you look at the real cost of, of cocaine in australia i mean everyone sort of thinks it's 300 dollars a gram right so in bolivia and in, so say, let's take colombia colombia a kilogram goes for wholesale 1500 us okay so let's call it i don't know 2000 aussie Two dollars a gram, and then when it comes to Australia, people think it's three hundred dollars a gram, but in fact they short weight it 0.8, so if that makes it three hundred and seventy-five dollars, and then they cut it in half at least. So it's actually what Australians are paying is about seven hundred and fifty dollars per gram on the street level, I think. And what a waste of money! You could just go overseas mm. and have a really good holiday. You could you know save for a house, and then so people who are doing cocaine and then complaining about the Sydney house prices, just, yeah, <laughs> just the oh the irony, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking young people. <laughs> yeah. Go and get some Ritalin or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of prescription drugs um, out there in Australia. Now, this this book is uh, is kind of rebranding Colombia. You feel? Um, no. Look, after having spoken <laughs> so well of the Colombian people, this is still a, the the dark underbelly of yep. Colombia. Um, mm-hmm. So the thing that I got really interested in is you know the the relationship between the war on drugs and the fact that cocaine is illegal and what the fallout effects are in Latin America and one of the really devastating impacts is uh, the phenomenon of child soldiers in yeah. Colombia. So, you know, some kids as, as young as 10 or 11, well, one I spoke to was eight, uh, they're getting recruited. They yeah. don't get forcibly um, recruited, that they join up voluntarily, inverted commas. Yeah. Um, but Colombia, uh, during the peak of the war, had the second highest number of child soldiers in the world. Now, really? we all know about Coney. African child yeah, soldiers, but yeah. who knew that Colombia had child soldiers and they estimated that between this is the UN I believe estimated between 10 and 
10 and 14,000 children were involved in the in the war. Some of them, the younger ones, they'd use them as spies or messengers. Yep. And then the ones, as soon as they were old enough to uh, carry, carry, a, a carry a gun and, and, a, and a pack, and then they were treated as adults. They were frontline soldiers. Uh, thirty between thirty and thirty-five percent of the child soldiers were girls, and so Jesus. they're often effectively used as as um, as sex slaves as yeah. well by the commanders. And they sort of said we're all equal, but as soon as as soon as a girl gets her period, they give her the contraceptive injection. So it's basically like, well, I haven't got a boyfriend, and you know, I'm not sexually active. Well, it's like, yeah, but you're going to be. Pretty so, so stuff. this is for for the listeners. Um, this is the new book, Colombiana. Plug. 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 <laughs> so and, it's Colombiana? Colombiano. Colombiano. So Colombiano just is the, ma- is the male. So a Colombiana would be a female. And yeah. then Colombiano, it just means, it's like Baz Luhrmann calling, calling his movie Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just calling it Colombiano. <laughs> so 10% of the, of the profits from Colombiano goes to That's protecting correct. Colombian children. So from with a lovely friend of mine, Belinda Pratton, um, we... Uh, started a foundation um, in Australia to collect funds for uh, Colombian child soldiers and my house in Bogota is used as the head office over there. Mm-hmm. Um, Belinda, I must say, is no longer involved and I've also stepped back just because I don't want to be have a conflict of interest in yeah. promoting my book versus promoting the yeah. charity. Yeah. But yeah, 10% of the... Of the of the royalties of my royalties just go directly to these child soldier foundation and basically the war's over officially so there aren't any more child soldiers but there a lot of them are in danger of because they have these skills and they've been subjected to such horrific levels of violence what we're seeing now is a, a big fracturing of the drug market in Colombia um, particularly with uh, Mexico taking over yeah. and so all these big tor- terrorist organisations I mean FARC at, at its peak numbered between 17, 17 and twenty thousand so that was really rivaling yeah uh, it was it was the biggest insurgency in the western hemisphere and so imagine all these people who have been subjected to horrific violence who know how to use weapons who have used to war in a in a country with really high unemployment what are they going to do there's a real temptation yeah. to go into the cartels or into so do you think the cartels are, the cartels would just swallow the uh, the the political extremists exactly well yeah. i mean basically they've you know a lot of the political extremists were sent to prison but then when they get out that's all they know and yeah. you know, here's the thing we, for for decades in the war on drugs we've been bla- blaming the supply nations we're blaming the bolivians we thumb our noses at the colombians and go look they're morally inferior people it's a corrupt country that's why we've got cocaine in australia Nonsense. Yeah. Supply and demand. We're the ones demanding the cocaine. Yeah. We're, Sydney's the one that's snorting it in Batuta. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, you know, Colombia is a poor country. It's not. It hasn't had really strong governance. And so, of course, that demand will be met by the supply from whichever country. I mean, Af- and there's no there's no coincidence that Colombia was a country which had three different terrorist organisations. Afghanistan, and they're the biggest producers of cocaine. Afghanistan is the biggest producer of the illegal poppy, mm-hmm. and they've got uh, you know they've got, they had the war there as well. Yeah. So th- there is a real correlation between the fact that the war on drugs makes drugs illegal and the and the levels of violence and terrorism in the supply nations. Yeah. And it's not good enough to just say. Those guys are at fault. Let's go in there and, and, and prop up the war. Yeah. Either we make drugs illegal ourselves and recognise that we've got a habit, tax it, uh, fund rehabilitation centres, look at this as a medical problem, or, um, you know, or just try and reduce our own our, the own harm that we're doing. Like how we how we are responsible for for these. So in in the, in the in the debate of drug reform, you'd say you're 
erring towards legalization. Absolutely. Look, I don't, I don't like to argue against myself, but I don't want to say it's, mm-hmm. it's a clear-cut issue. It really is a complex, complex dilemma, and uh, whether you further criminalize or completely legalize and tax, which I'm in favor of, you're always going to have problems because you know addiction is a it's a medical problem right so a certain percentage of people who try any drug whether it's alcohol tobacco uh, ice or cocaine or heroin are going to become addicted and that's just a fact that we have to accept Uh, so governments coming out and saying zero tolerance we want zero drug deaths zero you know there's no such thing as a safe drug well there is no such thing as safely taking these recreational drugs you can die from them you can become addicted but just saying zero tolerance over and over and over again is not actually going to help anything so a more realistic and pragmatic approach is to treat drug addiction as a medical issue Mm -hmm. we should be listening to our scientists and not to our politicians who stand up publicly and they've got a real interest in just and showing how tough they are on criminality and every time there's a drug overdose rather than putting on the table sensible discussions about drug reform they go no let's go after the traffickers and what yeah. look look at what's happening with the pill testing mm-hmm. and what what happens is you put dogs on the door and uh, you know Sydney's leading the world in in a number of um, sniffer dogs, who are, they, who are they busting? Are they busting the, the big cargo shipments coming in? No, Just they're, busting, they're busting NRL players. And yeah. that's, that's bad for the sport. Yeah. Sorry. So that was a bit of a stab. They're, they're, busting, <laughs> they're busting 19-year-olds named yeah. Toby. Yeah, like, and then, and then an 18-year-old kid can get caught with, with a couple of pills and get mm. a criminal Record. conviction that's going to stay with them until the day they take their and, last and a, breath. And a, and a couple of pills are easier to get your hands on than, 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 a, than a carton of beer. Exactly. Yeah. And also, look, you think about, the, as you've talked to on this, show, on this podcast before, you think about the effect that, say, lockout laws have. Mm. And so if alcohol is no longer available and, and you know, wage rates are low relative to the cost of uh, recreations, you know, and, and entertainment, mm-hmm. then people are going to look for cheap, cheap substitutes. Now, it's a lot cheaper to take a pill that's going to last you for six hours mm-hmm. than it is to go out for a night drinking in, an, you know, in, in CBD. Mm-hmm. So that's one effect um, of the lockout laws and, the you know, the cost of alcohol versus drugs. But the effect of, say, having sniffer dogs at the doors of every um, outdoor festival is that kids will either take the drugs all their drugs in yeah. one go before they go in. So they, they go, yeah. yeah, if you've got drugs, yeah, but yeah. I just swallow them. Yeah. Go in, collapse. Yeah. Um, or they don't take the drugs in and they buy them inside from someone who they don't know. Right? Who is obviously much more reckless than anyone because he's gotten yeah. through that gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that said, it is a really, really difficult – I recognise it's a really difficult position to take for governments themselves to say – yeah, let's have pill testing. Why? Well, I mean, how are you going to how are you going to enforce this? How are you going to tell the policeman go and arrest people for selling, buying? Don't go near that tent. But don't go yeah. near that tent. So there's like a kind of like a a, a, a green zone between the, the turnstiles and the tent. And then hmm. when the people come out smiling, you go, yeah, my batch of ten pills is good. The policeman has to turn a blind blind eye. So it's not fair on the police for a start. But I think you know the police do a really good job in a really difficult uh, circumstances. And I get that the government can't do it, but what they what the, the, the technology is available. It's not expensive, so there could just be private entities who are supplying these kits more, uh, you know, more freely. And yeah. if people want to use those kits in the privacy of their own home, yeah, yeah. then that would be a good thing. If you start training people to look at the drugs, mm. and look, this this experiment has been done in Amsterdam, uh, you know, twenty years ago, and it has reduced. Like, there's there's no there's no one dying of there's no like, six kids passing out at a at a festival mm. in Amsterdam yeah. because they've got pill testing. And what it does is it means that let's say that you are a manufacturer 
of dodgy pills. Like you're putting in Drano, yeah. you're putting in uh, fentanyl is the worst one. Fentanyl is a it's a synthetic. Are they doing that now? Synth- yeah. yeah, they've put fentanyl in, in, some, in pills. That's some real bad it's, shit. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than, than heroin. So right, yeah. so you go, oh, kids don't know what ecstasy is. Let's just put a few little drops of, a little specks of fentanyl in there. That that can kill you if you get the dose wrong, right? Yeah. So the, the, the dodgy drug t- t- dealers who are dealing bad stuff and they get pill tested, no one's going to buy them anymore. So it kind of, yeah. in some ways, it yeah. increases the yeah. quality of the yeah, market. Yeah, That's yeah. one of the net effects. You don't get people doing all their drugs before they go into festival and you don't get dodgy people inside who are, t- who are reckless and they're criminals selling mm-hmm. it to them. I mean, by definition, all drug traffickers are criminal at the moment. But if you're talking about public safety and yeah. public health- Carl Williams was actually, you know, Deserved a Nobel Peace Prize for the um, quality of ecstasy that he was putting out in the streets <laughs> well, in the yeah. underbelly. An, interest, an interesting fact about uh, about ecstasy and MDMA is that it was actually used and it came into um, popularity as a marital aid. And so a lot of um, psychologists in, in Los Angeles in particular were recommending it for couples because it makes you more intimate. Yeah, right. And it wasn't really illegal until about the mid-80s. It, didn't, it wasn't really on the radar. After the US government banned it, some really legitimate physicians who really thought this was a really good drug um continued to make it and they made it in a in a an abandoned mine shaft <laughs> and they made they made really high quality um ecstasy because they genuinely genuinely believed it was you know in favor of humanity now i think science has come a little bit further now and recognizing that you know ex- long-term mdma use uh, causes depression and mental mm-hmm. disorders so i'm not saying it actually is a good drug to take but it's better when when science, when scientists are, 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 are making it and when qualified physicians are administering it rather than letting dodgy outback uh, out, out yeah. you know, out Batuta. <laughs> the press in the garage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, just, just quickly, you've, you've done, we're kind of um, running out of time here, but we, you've done Bolivia. You've seen a lot of that. You've seen a lot of Colombia. Is there another? Is there a third yeah. country you're looking I mean, at? Australia. Yeah, you the, reckon you could the buy the private a, non-democratic yeah. republic of Australia. You reckon you? You reckon you've got enough corruption here to work with? Look, there's plenty. You know, like I wouldn't call it corruption. Like, say, the police aren't taking bribes to for you know, speeding. Uh, Not since Rogerson. Speeding motorists because mm. the, the cameras do their work. Um, <laughs> no, but look, there's a lot of corporate corruption. It's basically I'd call it corporate um, capture of the government and that's really concerning because it's structural so at least we haven't got the system like in the US where uh, lobby groups can pay money and then start to buy up politicians we haven't got that but what we've got is a a really deep malaise and cynicism about people in public office so anyone who sort of looks at politicians and and thinks they're all corrupt why would someone who really has Australia or New South Wales or any uh, part of Australia's um, best interest at heart go into such a cynical and dirty game. But what we should be doing, I think, is actually, and this is a serious point, is rebranding um, polit- uh, politicians to show this is these are public servants. These are people who, at least yeah. initially, go in to help society, and the, some of them do actually help society. I don't want to, I don't want to dump all over all politicians and say they're all corrupt. Nah, but all it is a <laughs> it is a pretty corrupt game. But if we held our politicians to higher standards and in higher esteem, then you'd get people going proudly. You know, I am the, yeah. I am, the, the, I am to- the mayor of Batuta. 
Yeah. They'd be able to brag he about it at dinner King parties like, like surgeons do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like right now, look, think about what what were the honourable professions, you know, in, in, in when we came out of university, it was, you know, doctors and, and lawyers. And now it's... Lawyers. Yeah, lawyers were considered to be pretty trustworthy. Once upon a time. People used to admire lawyers and doctors because they were the, the backbone of society. And, mm. and, and t- teachers and nurses and people who do really, really yeah. positive things for, for society. Well, uh, military, what, military as well, particularly in the States, you know, that kind of, yeah. 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 And now we've come to admire admire or associate people's moral virtue, virtue and their social status with how much money they're earning. Mm. And that's a really big uh, deviation from you know, previous historical values. And mm. I think if you start saying this person is a good person or a valuable person to society because they are rich, mm-hmm. that's a yeah. really, really dangerous way of thinking and it can take society in a really dangerous neoliberal economic Direction. Well, Prime Minister Chifley was a train driver. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll finish on that note. <laughs> yep, so this book... Colombiano plug. ...released in Australia about 18 months ago. It was the highest-selling fiction book in 2017, and it's just about to be released in the UK next month. It's coming out in on the 1st of March in the UK and the 1st of April in USA. So to all of our listeners uh, in those horrible, windswept, cold countries... And in the outer at Batuta. The moment, yep. Head on down to your uh, to your local bookstore, or go on to Amazon. Amazon, Amazon. plug, plug. <laughs> Thanks Thank for joining us, Rusty. Thank you guys. And that was Rusty Young, uh, one of Australia's more eccentric and interesting authors, and uh, obviously he's still hard at work. Thank you for listening. This is the Batuta Advocate Radio Show. I'm Clancy Overall. You be kind to each other. And my name is Errol Parker. Until next week, stay out of the pokies. They're bad for you and never ever talk to the cops without legal counsel presence.